The Never Before Project presents the Lethal Faith Podcast with your host, Dr. Michael B. Nye and Blake Harris. This podcast is for students, parents, and church leaders who are interested in keeping their faith strong. Visit us online at neverbefore.tv or on Facebook at The Never Before Project. Let's get into the podcast. Hello, Lethal Faith, and I am glad to be able to take some time to talk to you. I'm Dr. Michael Knight. I'm here with my sidekick, Blake Harris, and we've got a very fascinating subject for the next two podcasts. Before we get in, started in that and before we define what we're speaking about today, I want to encourage all of you to take a moment and share this podcast and help us get the word out about Lethal Faith. We have people listening from China and all over around the world, and we are excited about what God is doing um, in helping us to train people to think correctly about reaching the next generation. So Blake, today we're gonna to talk about religious experiences. And it seems to be a lot of churches um, have uh, kind of knocked having a religious experience with adolescents. They kind of see it as emotionalism. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree with that thought is, you know, especially uh, millennial pastors and things like that have taken religious experiences and even kind of pushed them to the side and said, said okay, you can have this experience in the back room, so to speak. And, and we're not allowing uh, the youth of our today uh, experience uh, what God is actually doing in someone's life. Yeah, you know... <clears throat> I'm finishing and I'm almost done with a second doctorate, a PhD. It's rooted in sociological science of adolescents that are passionate about their religion. And as you know, we did several podcasts and had great feedback on retention and attrition that came from Christian Smith. And if you remember, there are five reasons why adolescents retain religious faith. And there are five reasons why they lose their religious faith. And both of them were the same. And one of those is that they, people, kids that retain religious faith have more religious experiences than those kids who don't have religious experiences. The less religious experiences a child has, the less likely they are to keep their faith. And that religious experience could be a salvation. So that's really interesting because over the last few years, it seems like we downplayed religious experiences like you're saying, Jay. Um, Blake, and it, it actually originates with Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So in Western philosophy, we've always thought that if we are really logical and rational, we would remove emotions from the way in which we engage the world. But see, neuroscience today has adamantly disproven Descartes. Uh, there is a logical, rational place in the brain, but what we now know is that it is absolutely impossible to have a logical or, or a rational thought without it being connected to the limbic system in the brain, which is where the emotional centers are at. So it's, you know, Blake, absolutely not true. What's interesting for all of us that are on this podcast today is that there is a guy named Andrew Newberg, who is a neuroscientist, and he has done a great amount of definitive work on neuroscience, neurology, and religious experiences. And what's interesting, Blake, is how he started out. He started out by taking an MRI and placing someone who spoke in tongues under an MRI. And this is way back in the 80s. And it was, I remember seeing it on on ABC uh, News Nightline uh, in the 80s. 
And what he did is he puts uh, several people under an MRI, and then later, I believe, under an elevated casket or an elevated MRI, and he looked at their brain patterns, and he found out that the frontal part of the brain where speech comes from, um, when someone was speaking in tongues, did not light up. Now, that is neurologically impossible because that is where speech comes from. Correct. Uh, you know, as uh, Pentecostal Charismatics, you know, I see this as confirmation as that whenever we speak in tongues, that it actually comes from our spirit and not actually from our mind, so to speak. And so I, I, I really am encouraged by that research. Uh, it, it, it's really incredible, actually. Well, let me push back on you a little bit. If that's, you can look at that two ways. Atheists can also look at that and then turn around and say, aha, I told you that the human brain had a spot in it for religious. And we're religious because there is a spot in the human brain that facilitates religious expressions. So then I would tell them, well, great. We are actually wired for religious experiences with God. And so therefore you are wired to communicate with God directly. Well, that's true. Now let's get into that because that's a great rebuttal you just gave. And that's the proper answer. While uh, atheists or people who uh, believe that uh, God is an illusion within our own consciousness, which is stupid because consciousness is the greatest apologetics that there is a God. The fact that a human being is conscious and self-aware outside their own body. But they would say that there's a spot in the brain, but the rebuttal to that is no, we would look at it a different way. The entire brain is wired for God. And so for all of you listening, I want you to get a couple of points down already. Number one, we used to believe that in, uh, passionately devoted religious adolescents that we needed to be careful and steer clear of religious experiences with kids because after all, it was just an emotional experience and emotional experiences cannot be trusted. Only logic and reason can be trusted. We're not, what we now know, Blake, and, and people listening, is that that's not true. We know scientifically and definitively that's not true, that actually emotions that engage in the whole body and the brain through logic and rational uh, thinking actually seals belief. It's, it's fascinating to me. So I think it's important for us to kind of lay the groundwork that we may be headed in the wrong direction in the church. We may be headed in the wrong direction in church because most people don't give time and space for religious experiences anymore. You're right. Uh, and, and that's probably our great one of the great things that we kind of do wrong in the church today is we don't allow time and space for those things to actually happen. We're, we're so set on a schedule of, all right, we open up with prayer, then we immediately move into worship, take up the offering, and then we preach the word, and then, all right, let's all dismiss and, and move on about our day. And so we're so confined to this hour, hour and a half service, and we're like, we can't move out of this because people don't like change. People don't like things that are unexpected so to speak. But that's really how God works is he works unexpectedly sometimes. You know, he, he comes in and he suddenly moves in. And and that from there, it, to me, that makes uh, church services uh, feel alive and exciting. You know, you, you walk into a church service and you think, man, I wonder what's going to happen today. You know, mm -hmm. so. The spirit of expectation. As a senior pastor, I realize the pressure of time constraint. In our church, 
if if I can use our cultural vernacular, if the Holy Spirit's moving, they'll stay forever. But as a pastor, every Sunday, I feel a great, tremendous amount of pressure about time and getting people in and out of time. But then as a social scientist of adolescent religion, I can also tell you that the that what's coming out in the Picasso, the Pentecostal Charismatic Adolescent Survey Instrument in 2021, can definitively uh, uh, suggest strongly that the reason why only 64.4%, something like that, of Pentecostal charismatic adolescents have been baptized in the Holy Spirit can be directly related back to the fact they have a pastor that doesn't give time and space at least once a month for a religious experience. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's kind of a sad statistic because uh, that used to be what really defined you as uh Pentecostal was that, hey, you spoke in tongues, and now we're not even saying that everyone within our church walls necessarily has the, even the chance to be able to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Guys listening and ladies, I want to make sure that what we're getting ready to get into, that you listen carefully. It's a little dusty. It is certainly complex and academically driven, but it is essential for practitioners. Uh, if you want to learn how to defend the fact that children need religious experiences, not manufactured religious experiences, but true religious experiences, uh, and that they're advantageous to the ceiling of faith in adolescence, then I want you to listen to both podcasts because in this one, we want to just stop and we want to take a look at the brain because one of the things, and if you haven't read the books from, um, from uh, Andrew Newberg, He's written several. One, he, he's defined since, you know, the 80s, the concept of neural theology. He has a great book called Why We Believe What We Believe and The Mystical Mind and lots of literature in the academic journals. Uh, he's a professor uh, and a doctor at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school. And so let's take a little bit of time, Blake, and just kind of look at the brain. Number one, that brain has a structure. And all you youth pastors, listen up. Children's pastors, parents, teachers, students. The brain is divided into two hemispheres. There's a left and a right brain, and each controls the opposite side of the body. The left actually is the dominant side, and the left houses language in most people, uh, specifically right-handed people. Uh, left is in the left hemisphere of the brain. All of this can, is connected with fibers that are like neural transmitters that transmit information. So the brain is extremely complex. And so I'm trying to kind of lead us through an understanding of complexity through simplicity. So each hemisphere, there's a left and a right, has four main lobes, a temporal, um, make sure I pronounce this right, a, a paritical, paritical, or paracetal, excuse me, and um, uh, septical, golly, I'm uh, struggling with words today, and um, also uh, a frontal. Now, all of this is called the cerebrum cortex. And each lobe that I just mentioned has a function. There's four functions. And Blake, yeah, jump in. And so the occipital lobe, it, it uh, houses primary visual centers of the brain, has primary input from the eyes, 
Uh, and it, one of the things that Andrew Newberg discovered was that it has certain neurons that fire when a person is looking at a horizontal line, and it and so it fires horizontally and vertical lines. And in this case, kind of the cross and and. And in other words, whenever this region fires sight, it does so when the brain is stimulated by a view of a cross. And yeah, now that's fascinating. Now we can't press that point, uh -huh. but it is interesting. And even Andrew Newberg Blake um, made that comment that even the concept of the neurons firing the brain to where there's consciousness takes place when a vertical and a horizontal line is there in the form of a cross. Correct. That's interesting. You know, and, and he even goes on to say, like, he, he showed, like, multiple religious uh, symbols to people and how they interacted with uh, different religious symbols. It was an incredibly fascinating work. Uh, and so he... He even says that religious symbols, according to medical science, affects the brain in a very uh, primary way that other symbols do not. That's fascinating that religious symbols have the power to embed themselves in the brain in a way that other symbols do not. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, I'm not smart enough to even understand that, but it is incredible that that's the way our brain works. Well, the other lobe is called the frontal lobe. And what's interesting about that is it makes us uniquely human. It differentiates us from animals uh, because ours, our frontal lobes are larger than any other animals. Uh, it gives us the ability to concentrate. It gives us the ability to plan future events. It gives us the ability to initiate behaviors and actions and regulate emotional responses. And it helps us to plan our day. What's interesting is a lot of neuroscientists are now suggesting that the frontal lobe may be the place where the will is placed at. The will is actually located in the frontal lobe, possibly. Uh, and it plays a critical role in religious experiences because it regulates belief and behaviors. This concept that you have a belief because someone teaches it is erroneous. You have a belief because the people around you believe the belief. Belief is socialized. And that doesn't make it right or wrong, but for those of us who are practitioners, if we want someone to believe that Jesus is God, the best way to do that is to make sure you're working with the frontal lobes and that we understand that they are already pre-designed as a human being to embed belief. And therefore, if we have a church of 70 people who are all saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven, we're embedding that belief through the use of the frontal lobes and God has already pre-programmed the human body to receive that information and the input from those neurons and then seal that belief in someone. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I just, the research behind this is in really incredible to me is that God literally has already wired us, so to speak, in our brain to receive and communicate directly with him. Well, that's so true, Blake, that when the frontal lobes are lit up, when they are under an MRI or whatever machine you may be using, they actually are activated through prayer, through meditation, through rituals, and regulate emotional responses to belief. So the frontal lobes are designed to seal belief. Uh, and that it's actually activated when we pray. In other words, they took someone praying and they looked and saw what part of the brain, or they noticed what part of the brain was lit up 
And when they did the neural imaging, they found out, well, you know what? When they pray, the frontal lobes light up. When they meditate, the frontal lobes light up. When there is a ritual going on or they, there's an emotional response to belief. In other words, Jesus is the only way to heaven or abortion at nine months is wrong. Any kind of emotional belief lit up the frontal lobes and that you're designed to have passionate beliefs. Now that worries me a little bit because it seems like so many practitioners in the body of Christ today are embarrassed by religious experiences. Yeah. They, in the, in the sense that they want to look like intellectuals, they're actually anti-intellectuals. Yeah, which is, it, it, it's almost like an oxymoron, you know, uh, to, to really think about it. Cause you're like, well, I, I want to be intellectual, but then, so I remove the emotion from it so that I appear intellectual, so to speak. But in reality, what we're finding out is completely opposite, is that we must tie the emotions to it. Otherwise, we're not intellectual at all. Well, that's true. That's a great point, too. One of the other lobes was the parietal lobes. And what we've learned about those is that they take sensory information. So in other words, you know, when you sense the presence of God or you, you sense someone coming uh, your way. Um, they actually take it and they take that information to all the other parts of the brain, which is really interesting because that's the rebuttal to people who say, oh, there's a spot in the brain for religious experiences. No, there is not a spot in the brain for the religious experience. It takes the entire brain to have a religious experience. Well, I mean, to, to that point, even, you know, if I'm using my whole brain just to have a religious experience, man, that kind of makes me pretty smart. Uh, you know? <laughs> well, no, you know what? I joke about that because the truth is you're using more of your brain to worship God in a passionate way. Like say a Pentecostal and mm -hmm. Newberg uh, talks about this consistently or charismatics than you are if you are just someone who is intellectually driven with the faith. And I'm a huge intellectual when it comes to being driven by intellectual faith. Absolutely. But without a religious experience, the intellectual uh, aspects of it is useless. Yeah. I mean, so uh, it, it's cool, man, that we we take our entire brain just to communicate with God. And, and like you said, we kind of, it's kind of a joke, but it does. It makes us pretty smart. Well, these parietal lobes that we're talking about helps us to take sensory information from all other parts of the brain. It helps us to construct a three-dimensional sense of self. Uh, 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 it gives us our sense of body space. And it involves uh, tasks that orients the body. And it gives us a sense of space. And since religious experiences, this is interesting, require social relationships, this part of the brain actually helps establish social relationships for religious experiences. Uh, you know, it just goes back to the research, you know, that uh, James K.A. Smith uh, talks about is how we have to have a social network, so to speak, to help define uh, our own religion and, and what and how it programs us, so to speak, to have a religious experience. You no, know, Blake, I can't believe we're out of time. Let me sum it up and you close this. What we've learned today is that the thought that actually came hundreds of years ago from Descartes, I think therefore I am, that implied to Western philosophers and Western civilization that if you're going to be a logical, rational human being, you must remove emotion from thinking and rational thought. We now know because of this neuroscience that is absolutely 
not true, and it is actually not the way the brain is wired. Yet many practitioners, pastors, youth pastors, children's pastors, everyone, they think the way to discipleship and formation is through the head first. Memorize 66 books of the Bible, master Bible quiz, know all the scriptures. When what we now know that if the affections, and James K. Smith talks about that, yes. if the affections of the heart is not where you start in discipleship, you lose. The yes. Bible says even the devil believes and knows there's a God. That's right. So knowledge doesn't transform love. Knowledge, it will help us understand the love we have. But it starts with a passionate affection, A-F-F-E-C-T-I-O-N. And the science backs it. Neuroscience goes so far and helps us as practitioners to go so far to realize that if a teenager, specifically, we'll talk more about that in the next two podcasts, but if a teenager does not have a religious experience, number one, first and foremost, conversion. And that number is down to 14. It started out at around 18 or 17. It dropped to 15 in the 80s. And now it's around 14.5. If you're not saved before the age around 14.5, the chances of you becoming a Christian are slim. We need to do a podcast on that, Blake, because yeah. we could talk about that for days uh, on faith stages and James Fowler and, and all the other things. Oh, yeah. But what we've learned today is that, that <clears throat> excuse me, that we are wired for communion and connection with God. And that it's not just one place in the brain that is wired for a religious experience or the interpretation or the facilitation of a religious experience, but it is the entire human brain. Yes. Now, adolescent brains don't stop developing until they're 21, 22 years of age. And I think that's very interesting. That's a good. That's another good podcast. Just the adolescent brain. Yeah. Not to mention that faith comes in stages, and then with the understanding that religious, the brain is wired for sensory. It's wired for vision. It's wired for speech, and that when we have studied the brain under a religious experience, let's say like speaking in tongues that the front part of the brain does not light up under a uh, MRI. And there's another more advanced MRI machine in, uh, that they used. And that it's a, it's a place that where the language should light up in the fr frontal lobes, but it doesn't when you have a religious experience. We're going to get into next week on how those religious experiences actually release cortisone and serotonin. And that they actually cause a calmness wow. and meditation and prayer lowers the levels of anxiety. And we're going to continue to look at the brain. And then the third podcast, we're going to really hit hard about, well, does that make a difference to me? So for those of you that were listening today, make sure you realize that you cannot think logically without thinking emotionally because it's tied to the limbic system where the emotions are at the brain. Number two, religious experiences seals belief in adolescence. And religious experiences are created in the brain to be facilitated by the way the brain and the structure are already formed, we know, by the hand of God. Hey guys, uh, thanks for listening today. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe our podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening to the Lethal Faith Podcast, brought to you by the Never Before Project. 
To find out more about the Never Before Project or be a part of the discussion, visit our website at neverbefore.tv. You can also visit us on Facebook at the Never Before Project. Join us next week for another episode of Lethal Faith.